Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner. I am here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. I was apparently wrong last week when I said we would be there at the usual time because this week wasn't a bank holiday, so here we are on Monday. Well, indeed, because it was, in fact, another bank holiday. So this episode has uh, somewhat of a theme, although an inadvertent theme, I think, Michael. There are a couple of things we want to discuss that have come up in media. Various different reports that aren't, they don't lie to you, Michael, but they don't tell you the entire truth. And it's good to point them out when they happen, because we've had a few over the last while. The sort of thing where if you read it, you'll come to a conclusion that's incorrect, but you can never blame the person who wrote it for lying to you. Indeed. And I suppose there was, the one I wanted to start with, and we will go on to others, there's things about a new report claiming the foreigners and non-whites, as the Irish Times said, are receiving uh, harsher sentences. You might have seen that reported all around the place. The report is uh, not quite that straightforward. There were some interesting points made about the uh, retirement of a High Court president, which I'd like to compare, Michael, to how the retirement of a former Supreme Court president was discussed. Yeah. But I wanted to start off with, with this uh, with this thing involving Sharon Kyogen. Sharon Kyogen telling a representative of an LGBT group, I think it was a gay man who had a child by surrogacy, that he was lucky to have been allowed in to speak to a doll committee, Michael. This has been widely reported. It was widely reported last week. By the time we were recording, I don't think the transcript had come out of the meeting, and we wanted to be absolutely sure what had happened. So, Michael, I know Joe.ie did a video on this where they just said that, um, they said to this man, the group he was representing was a group called Irish Gay Dads, that he was lucky to be here. And then they say she got kicked out of the meeting. And this was reported in numerous articles. The Irish Examiner seems to be doing wholesale pieces on how we should let Sharon Kyogen speak, even if what she's saying is offensive and awful. They had a piece up there the other day, Michael. I wanted to, to, to give you the, the heading and the subheading of it. Yeah. The heading is in defense of questions, however unsavory. The subheading is you need an honest exchange of views, however repugnant, at the very least to know what the enemy is thinking. Now that is immediately above a photo of Sharon Kogan, and the caption on that uh, photo of Sharon Kogan mentions that she had said things in the committee which were termed bigoted, cold, and cruel, Michael. Yes, that is correct. I mean, I think you should also contextualize it by saying who said that, and we'll get into how accurate that was. But off, just off the get-go, uh, Gary, first of all, the enemy. I would have thought it, in a parliamentary democracy like ours, modelled on the, the British system with, the, with the, Her Majesty's uh, government again and the loyal opposition, and that was a central notion of the way that our parliamentary system is based. You, you, you have the opposition who oppose government. They are not, although this person actually is not in the opposition, but the people in the government are, are not enemies. They are opponents. And there's a real difference between being an opponent and being an enemy. And to frame it, to frame this debate, insofar as we can call it a debate, as between being us and the enemies. We, you know, when the, the, the things we constantly hear about, Gary, is it not, is the otherizing which takes place in politics. It's a very bad thing, isn't it? When we create others and we exclude them and we point and we say, you are other than me. And that, because this is a way of dehumanizing people and it also makes it easier for us to, to attack them and to just let me do very bad things to them. By making, this is a very otherizing way of approach. Also, I don't want to be excessively cynical, but it was almost hard to take seriously the, 
the manner in which this article was presenting itself as if to say, we have to listen to these points of view. You know, it's a, it's a defense of robust free speech, a debate, debate. Was it really? Or was it actually just a way of saying these people are horrible and nasty and repugnant? And look how liberal and progressive we are that we allow them to speak. The fact that they're talking about somebody who is an elected member of the Oireachtas, that they're allowing to speak, they're allowing to ask questions, even though in the end, actually, she wasn't really allowed because she was, in fact, excluded. I'd try hard to take the whole thing in good faith. To summarise the articles about this in general, Michael, I think they were generally designed to present Sharon Keoghan as a bigot and to imply, because they knew they couldn't say it, that when she said, you're lucky to be here today, that she meant that in a sort of, you're lucky that they will allow some lowly homosexual in here to talk to me about children. Yeah. But then you read the transcripts and you realise there's a couple of, of things here. The chap she said, you're lucky to be here today, had himself, at least twice in his statement, said, I am one of the lucky ones. So she says, Gerard, you're extremely lucky to be here today. You do not know how lucky you are to be here today. And the meeting gets suspended because this happens in the middle of an argument that is happening between Sharon Keoghan, Mary Kearney, who is a Fine Gael senator, who I believe has a child through commercial surrogacy, yeah. and Leanne Ruin, who is after referring to Sharon Keoghan as posing this entirely because she is a bigot. Now, this, in this case, by the way, is commercial surrogacy. Not surrogacy generally, commercial surrogacy. So the meeting gets suspended. And when it comes back... Kathleen Function, who is the acting chairman, that would be Sinn Féin deputy Kathleen Function, demands that Kyogen apologise. And Kyogen says that she's not going to. She then goes on to say the following. Jared, you're extremely lucky to be here today. You do not know how lucky you are to be here today. And I will tell you why. Now, through this entirely, Mary Kearney... Erin McGrahan and other senators are trying to talk over her. But Sharon goes on to say, Yesterday morning at a private meeting, yesterday in a private session, there was a group that was suggested to come before the committee who had 1,500 followers, I don't know if that's social media or whatever, and the committee would not allow them. Kyogen is saying his group was lucky to have been allowed because other groups were not allowed. Yes. And then she gets shouted down, so she can never finish explaining it. But it's clear from it that the presentation of... Kyogen's comments is not what Kyogen was trying to say. And again, Kyogen is openly being called a bigot in a very odd circumstance, actually, because Kyogen doesn't Kyogen doesn't say anything unusual in arguments about commercial surrogacy. Like she doesn't say anything out there, but she just starts getting shouted down, and Kathleen Function then invokes standing order 113, which basically gives the whoever is leading the committee the ability to remove someone from that Oroctus committee because they are being grossly disruptive. And Kyogen gets kicked out of the uh, the meeting. Yeah, no, Gary, I, have you seen the video? So, I mean, the video clips of this grossly disruptive. She, they're saying Kyogen was being disrupted, grossly disruptive. Not the people that were shouting and roaring at her and talking over her. She was being grossly disruptive. I think I believe the exact phrasing is grossly disorderly. Well, whatever you can see on the video, that Kyogen is upset. Every time she tries to explain herself, people are shouting over, and the chair, who again is a Sinn Féin deputy, just allows it to happen, and then threatens to kick her out. And when Kyogen is asked to apologise and tries to explain what is happening, she just gets kicked out of the meeting. And then you have people like Joe.ie putting up a video, but deliberately not putting in the part where Kyogen tries 
to explain herself. So it just ends on Kyogen telling a gay man he's lucky to be before a doll committee. You cannot do that accidentally. No, no way. There's no way this happened by accident. The whole thing, do you not think, was bizarre? I mean, the framing of this, the whole discourse around commercial sur- surrogacy in Ireland seems to me to be grossly skewed anyway. That it's it's become a them and us. It's one of those football politics issues now. It's our side, their side. Our team likes this, therefore, and their side likes that. So when we know how, how we ha- how we have to think about this subject, the fact that there are countries all over Europe that are, shall we say, secular republics for long that have made this uh, an illegal practice of bandit years ago doesn't seem to have any kind of effect on this discourse in this country. It's in, it's infantile. Football, ba- football team politics. Whatever about the debate about surrogacy, and as I said, this is commercial surrogacy. This is not general surrogacy generally. A large amount of media outlets in this country deliberately chose to take something out of context and present it in a way which showed someone as substantially worse than they appear to be. And they're not going to apologise. They're not going to say they made a mistake. They just decided, today, fuck you. And they just did it. And if they can do it to a sitting senator, they can do it to anyone. And they will do it to anyone. I thought the tone was, even for this kind of discourse, was unusually extreme. And the language was even more pointed than usual. And I don't see how any kind of reasonable person reading the transcript and looking at the video of it could construe it from what she said. The reaction also, by the way, Gary, of the other members of the Oireachtas, was, was it not, did you not, did you not think it was bizarre? And rather, I don't, again, at the risk of over-egging the pudding here, a little bit like what would imagine a struggle session might look like. Kathleen Funchen is not the normal chair of this committee. I, I think this has demonstrated that Kathleen Funchen should not be the chair of any committee. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. to go... She steps in to say, to tell Kyogen she can't speak over someone, but then allows Kyogen to be spoke over. Yeah. And like, fine, you have a viewpoint, you don't like Kyogen. That's fair enough. You're allowed to have that. Maybe don't take a position where you're required to be neutral. Or at least make some kind of a semblance of an effort to look neutral. Now, I will say, out of the the two articles in the Irish Examiner on this, Daniel McConnell's um, piece, he does explain that uh, what happened with Kyogen and Standing Order 113 was ridiculous. Well, that's Daniel. I mean, he's actually, dare I say it for the, for the examiner, a bit of a bright light in an otherwise rather dark room. So that was, that was one of the things that came out. And as, as we were putting this show together, I hadn't intended to talk about this. It had been something I, I'd just been thinking about. And we've talked, Michael, before about you know, how you know what you think you know. And most of what you know is because you've been told it by people you trust. Exactly. that Because otherwise, how do you live life? You, 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 we, none of us have the time or the opportunity or the inclination to go around fact-checking every single bloody thing that comes across our noses. And so you have stuff like this. If you have people and ideas and positions that the media is willing to just chronically misrepresent, it seems very reasonable for people to have mistaken views about them. But I think this stuff is way worse than getting stuff wrong. If you get something wrong, there's an honest mistake. This is a deliberate positioning. And then you find the media having this terrible, well, when, when you know, when, the, when you poll people on what they trust, the media is right down there with politicians. How do we fix this? And you sort of get a, maybe you should 
stop effectively lying to people on certain issues that, mm. that might have you considered that might be helpful but that never seems to be the the answer that's that's come to it's always well we need more fact checking people are being fed misinformation and they're disbelieving us because of that as opposed to occasionally we will just try and sell you total bullshit because we figure that you can't tell it apart from everything else there is I think well, a lot of people like us, and maybe we're just wrong, would say that one of the problems of the Irish media is that it is rather monotone or univocal, that it tends to, with honourable exceptions, it tends to cluster around a fairly standard set of opinions. And one of the problems with, I think maybe that we're saying, is it's a problem of competition in a sense, that when you don't have competition where you actually have a multiplicity of positions, opinions, or voices, then you can get away with this kind of thing. But if if you're in if you're in the in the media in England, say, right, give you an example, and you know that the Times, the Telegraph, the Financial Times, the Independent, and the Guardian are all going to report on the same story, right? You know that they are all going to come at that story with a variety of different positions or ideas, philosophical or ideological. So there's going to be disagreement and it's going to be parsed. Now that means as a newspaper, you're going to be, you're going to have to be careful to get the facts right. Because if you, if you are seen to sacrifice the facts at the expense, shall we say, and you think rather the facts become, are sacrificed at the expense, at the expense of the, of your ideology, of your, your, your ideology or philosophy, we, the reader has somewhere else to go. And the reader also has another, has another source to compare. And they, you will be exposed. But where you, where you have a situation like this, where the facts are presented much the same across the board in a lot of in different outlets, well, there's no competition, and there's no fear that you are going to be held out as a pariah. There's no fear that you will become a hissing and a byword because everybody else had come pretty well to the same conclusion. Everybody else had pretty well the same facts. There's that fundamental lack of opposition. And you talked about that lack of faith. This is a real problem for our democracy, first of all, because as we have often lamented here, Gary, it means that again and again, very serious issues don't get properly interrogated for whatever reason. But also, the decline in, in the faith in the traditional, what we call the heritage media, means that increasingly people are going to go to get their information, get their news, from alternative sources. Now, if they get their media, their their information from people like us, well, that's fantastic because we're never wrong and we're always scrupulously fair and accurate. And if they go to grip, well, that's super duper. <clears throat> but you know what, Gary? There are other places on the internet that are not as careful as we are. And one, it goes back to you know the old G.K. Chesterton quote: "The problem when people stop believing in God is not that they believe nothing, but rather they believe everything." And I think that's one of the problems when you have a decline in trust in, in heritage media. It's not that people become completely cynical, but may, in a sense they do. But that leaves them open to believing the most bizarre shit. I think one of the problems as well is this. Like, let's say the Irish Times covered this whole situation. Yeah. And they went out of their way to explain what Kyogen was talking about. And they gave context to it, which is why the article is probably like 2,000 words long. But... When other news outlets started repeating things that were incorrect and it started to gain traction on social media, they didn't say that was wrong. They didn't try and defend Keoghan. Or really, in this instance, 
defend the accurate reporting of the utterances of a member of parliament, which exactly. is the actual important point. Here. They let it happen because fundamentally, and actually the British news system for all of its better is also very hesitant to do this. There is a general understanding that ape shall not kill ape. <laughs> you do yeah. not go after other newspapers, even when you know what they're saying is bullshit and they won't go after you. And it's just a thing that happens. The tabloids are better about that, actually. Well, the tabloids, like, all newspapers are predators, but the tabloids are predators of a different type, generally. Uh, more and more I'm getting, I have time for tabloids, but anyway. I actually generally find, on a, like a, on a factual basis, whatever about what they choose to write about, oftentimes the standard of accuracy in tabloids about issues I'm aware of, um, or would have particular knowledge of, will be higher than broadsheets. Like, routinely. And very often the journalists have a, com- a, a, a style of writing and a compression which is really quite admirable. Because if you try and do it, it's very hard. But you want to talk about another thing that came out and was misreported, but was misreported everywhere in exactly the same way. The Irish Prison Reform Trust brought out a new report. Well, Interesting enough, it was paid for by the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, and it was carried out by Maynooth. Because every questionable piece of social science in this country has to be carried out by Maynooth. It's just the rules. I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, because I said that and that's insulting, I'm immediately going to say, this is much higher quality than most of the nonsense that comes out from the Irish NGO space. So what they wanted to do was they wanted to figure out are non-white and foreign offenders getting longer prison sentences than uh, Irish nationals and white people? Right. And they decided that they were going to do this by looking at prison data and then figuring out, you know, what's the nationality and ethnicity of prisoners, how long are they in for, and what they do. Now, that's defendable. I think there are issues with it. Because you're going to miss a lot about like how many people in certain ethnic groups are found not guilty or given non-custodial sentences or all that sort of thing. But it's it's defendable and it's it's workable. It's a reasonable thing to do some research on. It's a reasonable question to be interested in. You may have seen the the uh, reports on this that uh, foreign nationals get one third higher prison terms on average than Irish-born criminals. The Irish Times said foreign nationals and non-whites get longer jail term for sex offences. Study shows the Irish Legal News picked it up. We've had people from the Migrant Council on national radio stations. It has become, or is in the process of becoming, accepted knowledge in Irish society. Which was what happens with these. The study comes out, it's picked up by a load of other people, they talk about the study in a way that may not be supported, and over time people come to believe that the study said something it may not have. Yeah. In this case, a lot of the reporting on it is simply wrong. And I'll get into exactly how wrong it is, but there's one point I wanted to make, because this is an interesting one. They examined 13 different categories of offences, Michael. Yes. And they did it in two groups. One was Irish nationals against foreign nationals, and one was... Uh, white and then non-white ethnicity. People have been talking about the two categories in which foreign nationals got longer sentences than Irish nationals. In fact, there were four categories in which foreign nationals got longer sentences on average than Irish nationals. There were eight 
in which Irish nationals got longer than foreign nationals. And in one of those categories, they got nearly double the average sentence. So obviously that's the big story. Why is it that Irish nationals are getting longer sentences in twice as many categories as non-nationals? Well, here I think is the real question, Michael. Every single piece I have seen on this, every single one, every single mention of it, even in the Irish legal news, Irish Times, whatever, not a single one has mentioned that fact. Oh, but no, Gary, I, I, I can't believe that. No, surely not. That's a bit consistently odd, isn't it, though, that you don't mention that, for instance, if you're talking about, you know, who gets the longer crimes, maybe point out that in one of them, here's Irish nationals getting twice the sentence. That would seem reasonable. It seems worth commenting on. Yeah. But that didn't make it in. And I'm going to just put forward a, a theory here, Michael. And I understand if you think it's too far out there. But here is my theory. The Irish Prison Reform Trust sent out a press release on this. Now, Gript didn't get that press release, but I will assume the Irish Times did as their article went up before the report was actually released. I am going to suspect, Michael, that most of the people, maybe not all of them, who wrote or talked about this didn't bother to read the actual report, but rather went entirely off the contents of a press release they got. How long is the report, Gary? It's about 70 pages. Nah, I'm sorry, I'm not buying it. Are you saying a mere 70 pages that an Irish journalist wouldn't sit down and read a 70-page report and take notes and then write? No. Sorry, Gary, you're going to have to come up with a better answer than that. I mean, that's what I thought, Michael. But then when I read it, and I went, there are all these glaring methodological issues or just weird oddities that you'd think you'd want to put forward because you can't really say the study shows what you're saying it does because of these issues. But no one mentioned those issues, Michael. And I, I have to think that, you know, maybe they they ran the maths, Michael, and they said, well, it looks like a glaring methodological issue, but it's actually not statistically significant. I didn't do that myself. I, I just read the paper. I didn't, I didn't try and redo the maths, Michael, so maybe I'm wrong. And what kind of methodological issues might there be with something well, like this? Well, let me put it this way, Michael. If you were trying to figure out to compare two groups against each other and you collected all the data on it and then you found that you couldn't fit 25% of your sample into either one of those groups? Mm, 25%. What kind of numbers are we talking? Any idea what kind of numbers that might represent? So, and this is actually interesting, they said they had a sample size of 4,356, but when I manually retabulated everything, their sample size was actually 4,346, Michael. Oh. Now, that's not major, but it is kind of embarrassing. A little bit. <laughs> like, you assume at the end of your no doubt, you know, tens of thousands of euro on your report that you have added your sample size up correctly. Well, I don't know. I knew a guy once who had spent 10 years, a mathematician spent almost 10 years on a book and discovered that he'd made an error in the first three pages. Like Naomi Wolf, when she found out that the, um, what was it? She thought a lot of, of gay men were executed and it turned out that was just legal <laughs> oh. terminology and she yeah. finds out live on radio. But she got the doctorate. She still got that the doctorate. That reflects very poorly on Oxford. Yeah. So, so here we are. The sample size was 4,346. They couldn't find the ethnicity of over a thousand people. So let's look at the main thing people have talked about are sexual offences and controlled drug offences. So what happened, the way they did this methodology is they added up everyone who was white, worked out their average sentence, 
added up everyone who had committed the same crime who was anything other than white and added up their average sentence and just compared them. Yep. And that's not the worst methodology. Like, that is defendable. Here's the problem. It's not very nuanced, but... Well, like, you don't need to be nuanced and everything. So, when you look at sexual offences, which is the headline, Michael, that, you know, they get much higher sentences for sexual offences. Right. They were only able to identify nine cases of sexual offences carried out by someone who wasn't white. Now, Michael, they have a thousand people they can't put into any group. So, there are enough people in that undefined group to potentially reverse every major finding they had on ethnicity. I I doubt this is a question you could know the answer to, but is there any reason why they couldn't find out the ethnicity? So I didn't mention it in the article I wrote for Gript, but I did reach out to the prison prison service because I, I wanted to you know know what the issue was here. And what the prison service told me was that they record your nationality, but you're basically given a form when you go into prison and you can uh-huh. fill out certain parts of it. They're voluntary. So you can basically fill in your ethnicity if you want or not fill it in if you don't want to. So because it's voluntary, they don't have total coverage. Right. Okay. So perfectly fine explanation. I mean, you can query whether or not it should be voluntary, but it is what it is. That's not, by the way, this is not the fault of the researchers. That That is a hard limit based on the, the way the prison service collects data. That's just the data they can, they can yeah, get. So you, you can't blame the, um, the researchers for that. But what it does mean is that every single answer they've given on ethnicity cannot be stood over statistically. Just the num- There is so much potential for variance, you just couldn't do it. Particularly if you are basing your entire finding on sexual offences on nine non-white crimes. Yeah. Now, do they break down the nature of the offences? Like, say, in, you talked about drug offences. In the report, does it break them down into people like, I don't know, possession of a half ounce or somebody selling a kilo of coke or something? No. So what they do here is they look at the, the law under which you were imprisoned. And the problem there, as I think you, you are probably immediately aware of, Michael, is that and I explained this in the article, you can go jailed for assault, theoretically for spitting on someone. You can also get jailed for assault for beating someone half to death with a hammer. Yes. And so the problem here, and the researchers seem to know it, because they very much don't say that this shows anything certainty. And I would be very interested to see if the press release they sent out retained that nuance. But they acknowledge that you know, an assault is not an assault. They can't say if a white person and a non-white person commits the same crime that they're going to get different sentences because they do not have the capability to tell. If, for instance, in relation to controlled drug offences, non-national or non-whites get longer, according to this study. Now, putting aside all the issues with that and just assuming that you know this is correct, that could be entirely explainable. If, for instance, foreign nationals are involved more in, let's say, drug importation, and a lot of the people who have been jailed who are Irish nationals are low-level users. Yeah. You're in the same category, really not the same offence at all. But we no, we don't know that. We're speculating that could be an explanation. It might not be an explanation. We don't what we have we can say is the data that are available don't tell us. Yes, this is correct. 
Like, there is no way you could know from what they've put together. So we immediately know that the ethnic stuff, just, that isn't solid. That you, you shouldn't make any claim related to that. Because if you have, the uncertainty in that sample is just off the chart. It just, I'm just, off the top of my head, if you're going to do a piece of research like this, and you want to do a serious piece of research, on sentencing in Ireland and to see if there is some kind of a, a differential or, or disparity between the way people are sentenced, which might have a racial element to it, then surely you should spend a little bit more time. All of these cases, well, I don't know of all of the cases, a lot of the cases will be will have been reported in the press, the crime reports. There, there, are, there will be reports available from, from the courts system and to go through them and try and get some kind of sense of parity when you're talking about people, say if they were they were dealing at a certain level or above a certain level, was it importation? Were they selling, like as I said, like half an ounce of hash, or were they selling a five counts of a five a five keys of coke? Uh, these that kind of information it would take a lot longer to get together, but it surely would be possible to do some research like that, and that. If you're going to do the research, surely that would be a more profitable way of approaching this issue. So your problem here is there aren't actually that many prisoners in Ireland at any one time. And this only basically looks at a snapshot. So they ask the prison for a data. Now, you could try and do this over maybe multiple years to build up the kind of numbers you're looking for. But that's not what happened in this case. They had 13 categories and they considered it basically what they have. Now, the categories themselves are interesting because depending on how those categories are constructed, I'm not saying they did this, by the way, and I'm just going to say that before I mention this, but anytime there is a category split, which is selected by researchers. So, for instance, their first category, Michael, is attempts, threats to murder, assaults, harassments, and related offences. Sorry, could you just repeat that? Attempts or threats to murder, assaults, harassment, and related offences. So from attempts to murder to harassment. Yes. Now, the problem there is this. Let's say you ran that and you only had attempts to murder, assaults, and related offences, but not harassments. Okay. And it came out that um, foreign nationals got longer sentences than Irish nationals. But then you threw in harassment, and that changed. And then it turned out that Irish nationals got longer sentences. Right. The way this is constructed can give you different answers and can give you very different answers, particularly here where you're just looking at basically a ratio against each other. If the researchers wanted, and again, I'm not saying they did, you could take the data and choose your categorizations based partially on the results they give you. Sure, of course. And it's very clear from reading this report that these people have a very particular ideological uh, direction on this kind of thing. Which, again, is not to say they did anything, but when you get results that would match what you would expect people of this view would be looking for, then it's worth considering more closely. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about, uh, you know, the root causes of crime and whether or not immigrants get longer sentences because of uh, cultural differences or because of racism and they all kind of fall the way you would expect them to and they're not as bad bad as the iccl was when they said there was no evidence that body cameras were any good 
but they don't mention evidence that goes against their position. Mm-hmm. And then I think the first recommendation in the report is the um, the formal recognition that prison is always to be a you know a last resort, which is unsurprising considering it's coming from the Irish Penal Reform Trust. But these are just things to be aware of. At the same time, you need to split them into something so that you can study them. Overall, actually, on their their ethnic, their ethnicity section, there's only one category where they were able to identify more than 25 crimes committed by non-white people. So the numbers on everything on that list, incredibly small, usually being compared to several hundred non-white crimes. And the problem with a sample size that small is it might just be quite extreme cases, or cases that aren't indicative of the norm anyway. But none of this is, is... Surprising for the report, I really just wanted to highlight that it was reported exactly the same in effectively every media outlet that covered it, and no one mentioned any of the reports that you would think would be interesting, but might run against that idea. Yeah, and I have the strong impression nobody asked the question, what was the point of this report? I mean, genuinely... Unless you, unless the idea was, okay, we're going to do this report and the idea behind it is, okay, we recognize that there are fundamental problems with the way we've collated the data and there are methodological problems based on the data that were available to us, but this will begin a conversation that we need to have about the nature of sentencing. But unless it is a good faith attempt to actually begin a conversation that would stimulate the government to actually go away and do a study of its own that would actually have all of the detail, the nuance that you'd rely on. I don't really see the point of this. Well, there is a recommendation section, and part of it is about that, Michael. But then you have stuff like um, they want the principle that imprisonment is a last resort put into legislation. Why? Because it's from the Penal Reform Trust. They want better data recording of ethnic um, ethnicity, which seems reasonable. That would help, certainly help. With doing this again, then yeah. it starts talking about um, you know training for prison staff, making sure that they're not biased, all of that sort of thing. They start saying things like these results indicate that racial bias is an issue in sentencing, which is something they can't back up. Oh no! Not to be fair, on the face of it, there does seem to be a strong bias against Irish nationals. On the face of it, that result is also subject to the methodological issues that stop the other results from being useful. Yeah, but, you know, what's good for gooses is also good for ganders. I mean, it would be as fair as calling for one as the other. Um, They want prison staff uh, trained on concepts like structural racism. Ay, 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 no, 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 stop. Ay, ay, ay. Yes, you get the idea. It, it is what it is. Or they want, like, a, a new forum to be made up of civil society NGOs... Oh, oh, I can feel the will to live seeping out of me again. Why do you do this to me? It's fun. And yeah, yeah. Let's set up another few NGOs and let's see if we can find a couple of million. I mean, let's face it, there are sociology graduates coming out every, almost every day from the universities. We have to give them something to do, Gary. I w- will I tell you the most interesting stat I found in it? Go on. Okay. So travellers are overrepresented within the data. Well, hold on. No, how I, I thought this data didn't reflect ethnicity, just race. Does it? Sh- well, no. They have nationality and then they have ethnicity. So I think they may have classed travellers as white. 
So we have that. So travellers are 0.7% of the total population of Ireland, and they are 8% of prisoners. 8, 8% as opposed to 0.7%. That is a, that's a, that's, that's a big jump there, yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing, and this I was legitimately surprised by, and is interesting. There is no difference between the average sentence given to a member of the uh, traveller community and members of the general Irish population. No statistically significant differences. And I had just assumed there would be, that travellers would receive disproportionate sentences. But they said, no, if you look at it male only or female only, no statistically significant difference in the sentences they receive. Now, interestingly, Michael, this is the, I think it's the only area in the report, although it's possible I missed it. But this is the only area I could find where they add a little proviso saying there are significant gaps in the ethnicity data, which may have impacted these results. Right. Hmm. Anyway, I will put a, I'll put a link to the report and the, the gripped article I did. And I'll also put a link to the, um, to the transcript of um, Kyogen's uh, speech in the, uh, the Oireachtas Committee. Because, Michael, you can't trust journalists but you can probably look at the primary sources and see if they're bullshitting you. It's a help. Two more, as we're on this topic, Michael. Two more headlines for you. Go on. <clears throat> Legal world divided on legacy of retiring High Court president. Mary Irvin angered barristers with guidelines slashing minor personal injury awards. There's one. Right. Here's a second. And I just want to preface this by saying it's usually not fair to just take two different articles from the same newspaper. Because they can be written by different people, Michael. And, you know, different people in newspapers have different views. So it's not the win most people think it is. But both of these headlines come from the same person, from Mary Carolyn of the Irish Times. So here's the second one. Judges applaud Chief Justice Frank Clark as he retires. I can't recall a bad word with anyone, he tells colleagues who assembled to pay tribute. Two very different retiring experiences. Only one of them acted in a way which disgraced the Supreme Court. <laughs> you could say that, Gary. I couldn't possibly comment. So, the Irish Times is very well linked with the bar. Just as a general rule. They, they are, in many ways, the voice of the bar. Certain journalists, particularly, are very well linked and have been helpful in ensuring that the bar's views are felt, Michael forcefully and directly they are shall we say they 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 can make sure that the the views of the opinions of those at the practicing at the bar are well broadcast and well understood throughout society and the upper echelons of governance the outgoing high court president mary Irwin, she brought in certain reforms which were deeply unpopular and she kind of championed these reforms she did uh Treason, as far as I'm concerned. What she has done amounts to treason to the bar. One senior counsel fumed to the Irish Times, speaking on condition of anonymity. (laughs) Treason to the bar. There you go. Frank Clark. Well, Frank Clark. You know, they say the, the, uh, the really important bit is that you stick the landing. Yeah. Frank Clark had a career and uh, did relatively well for himself. And then just that, you know, the Seamus Wolf thing kind of came out of nowhere. And then suddenly, Frank Clark is saying and doing things which Chief Justice of the uh, Supreme Court should not be doing. 
you know how I feel about criticizing uh, people with access to legal remedies, Gary? And this man has the access to lots of legal remedies. He did tell his colleagues he'd never, he couldn't recall a bad word with anyone. Yeah, that showed, I don't know, either he hadn't been paying attention or else he hadn't much of a memory. I don't know, I, I in, in in this story, I saw a number of people commenting on various, from various perspectives. The one I kind of liked was the comment from Ismay on Twitter. I don't know if you saw that, Gary. The Bar Council mask slips in that piece. We see the true purpose of our court system as a means of wealth transfer rather than a system of righting wrongs. And it then links to the CCPCI uh, article, Does the Law Protect Incumbents, uh, published by the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission. But I rather liked that. The purpose of our court system is a means of wealth transfer, uh, presumably a wealth transfer out of the pockets of citizens and into the pockets of members of the bar. Was it? It was a system. It was a situation. I, 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 I don't. It was most a recycled comment, really, which recalled another incident like this, where somebody, uh, another a lawyer, was heard to comment, "How they're taking, they're taking the bread out of the mouths of our children. How are they to get going in a practice if this goes on?" Those poor fledgling barristers, Gary. What are they to do? Yeah, I think I was right when I said that. Uh... Frank Clark should have been retired. And indeed, that was your opinion. At the yes, time. and strongly remains that Frank Clark should have been uh, <laughs> retired in disgrace and driven off into the hinterlands with sticks. I wonder if there's anybody out there at this at this juncture actually remember the Seamus Wolf affair at all, considering it was such an all-consuming thing at the time. I seem to remember one of the headlines after Frank Clark just fumbled his way into it was um what was it uh judiciary goes to war yeah after mr clark had decided that he had to intervene in order to stop the reputation of the court being damaged a swing and a miss i think is how they would describe that michael he should have been removed by the oroctus but he wasn't but he wasn't and then as he said michael you know he got a roaring send-off it was triumphant from the times never a bad word to anyone and we all just kind of go, well, isn't that nice? Isn't that lovely? As opposed to someone who, well, not perfect, Michael. Um, no, and she certainly wasn't. But, you know, didn't disgrace the Supreme Court publicly. And has possibly done the state and the citizens of the state some service. Yeah, there is a um, an interesting quote in the Irish Times piece where they're saying that one of the reasons that um, Judge Irwine is is divisive was because she thought she was primarily a public servant whose first loyalty must be to the public not to the bar <laughs> could you imagine a judge going around with such notions in her head well you see, gary this is what happened when you this is what happens when you appoint women to the bench they lose the run of themselves <laughs> a public servant my god yeah i would note that there are multiple quotes in this article michael and um, not one of them has a name. Justice Denimans is bad, I'm told. For barristers or for the public? She goes around thinking she's a public servant. These people with their commitment to law and the running of the administration of law and not the bar. And not the bar. The bar that brought them up like chicks. What I find particularly interesting about the bar is for all the reputation of barristers as being exceptionally high earning, and there are barristers who make exceptionally good outcomes, uh, incomes, there are a lot of barristers who do very poorly. Gary, bars, barristers are like bookies. 
in that if you were to look at any one time the number of people who possess a license to be a bookmaker and the number of people who are actually practicing at bookmakers you'll find that a good half or more than half are are people with license but never practice and barristers are the same there i'm fairly sure there are more people who have been called to the bar in the country than are actually practicing at the bar and i remember a my geography teacher, God be good, uh, uh, and a fine good geography teacher he was, decided to take a career change and went and uh, was called to the bar. And we're chatting about it afterwards, and he said it was just generally accepted that it would take you five years before you could actually begin to make a living, and not particularly a, a good living, but five years of work uh, to get a practice. And even then, for someone like him, it was particularly hard because if, if you, you had to have connections. You had to come from a family of lawyers, or if, or it's better again if you came from a family of solicitors that might give you uh, refer you some briefs. But if you had no connections, you're just going out there to buy yourself. You go to any court in the country, and you'll see, particularly these days when they've changed the rules about who, how you can approach and whatever, you, young barristers that are there for the price of a taxi. There are a lot of young, a lot of barristers who try but never get there because they just you just can't make a living. I'm just not sure that the bar's priorities reflect what they should, Michael. It used to be the bar's priority was to make sure that not that, not, not that many people got called to the bar. Mm. But then they had to change because the government started getting a bit antsy. Gowns. Solicitors can even argue in front of the High Court these days, you know. It's all changing. Anyway, I think on that dismal, <laughs> dismal the bar note, anyway, perhaps we should call it a halt to it and wish people a very happy uh, workers day for all the people out there who are workers it's your day you should enjoy it and as we close just a reminder not to trust anything you read or see or doubt everything doubt everyone uh, live in constant paranoia of the uh, of the lies yeah because that's the way to be happy who said anything about being happy okay thank you jordan all the best bye bye